Welcome to the For Real For Real podcast, where we share our reality and perspective on what's going on in the world of pop culture, sports, relationships, society, and much, much more. All while keeping it real and getting into the shits, as we like to say. I'm Jeff Brooks, the Renaissance Man. This your boy, Big Easy. Para mi mujer hispana, me llamo Samuel. And they call me T-Mac, but my mom calls me Trevor. Today, we get into the brutal murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, and our salute to the Black woman. Welcome to the show. So the the incident happened on what Monday? Um, yeah, Monday last week. It didn't register for people until like Friday. That to me is like I don't even want to say it's astonishing. Like it's it's par for the course because these things probably don't register for a lot of people on their radar when it happens and it, you know, and it keeps happening. So maybe some people kind of tune the stuff out. So maybe it doesn't register to you until you see news reports about riots or looting or whatever else. But like the fact that, that you can kind of sit back and like, you can look people in the eye day in, day out. And there's so many memes going across social media talking mm-hmm. about how black folks have just been going to the office and sitting in meetings and fighting back tears and all that other stuff. How do you not, have that that sensibility that awareness to just kind of like say like oh wait this is different wow like this really affected me but you're right it didn't hit people until like later in the week thursday friday weekend of protesting president posturing in front of people right like all those things happened but you know like i don't know if if your perspective of things are a little different if you want to talk about it jeff or, or if trevor you have something you'd like to add yeah to i mean I'll be honest with you, Sam. I, I was not surprised. This situation didn't really move me as you would think at first. My reaction was, what's new? Mm-hmm. Here we go again. There's a popular viral recording going around where a rapper, instead of doing the DMX's, what these chicks want from a nigga, with all the women's like, you know, there's Brenda, Leticia. Mm-hmm. You know, that type of stuff. They actually have the names of the black men who have been murdered by police over the last seven or eight years. I think you might even go as far to like Amadou Diallo back in the 90s. So I become somewhat numb and accepting of this reality because I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted of explaining our humanity. I think for years... We've been telling people our back hurts and the rest of America has been telling us, no, it doesn't. And that's how it is being black in America is having your experience either dismissed or invalidated. Things that are recorded right in front of your face, it's justifiable. We say to ourselves, I have the same eyes you have. I know you're seeing what I'm seeing, but you just don't care. So just so I can get on with life and make money and smile, I don't really, I didn't find myself really getting too much affected. You know, we just accept the reality and do your best to uh, remain safe and affect change where you can. It wasn't until I really started to see that, wow, you know what, this does have some legs and the, the Steven Jackson component certainly does help. The fact that there's 40 million Americans unemployed right now certainly does amplify this. The fact that there's no new shows, no new dances, Nothing to really distract us right now. We have to really sit in our thoughts a lot more and really think about our futures a lot more and where our country goes from here a lot more. Definitely added to it. I think I even hit y'all about this when we first started talking about it last week. I immediately knew this was different. I'm like getting misty eyed just even thinking about it. It was like we just had Ahmaud Arbery happen, right? And as horrific as that was to watch and I'm not trying to make it sound better or worse. It was, you know, it was just as horrible, but it was quick. And I remember it was, this one brings me back a little bit to Trayvon. And if you listen to the, to the recording from that 911 call where you can hear Trayvon screaming, and I believe he was like on his knees or had his hands up or whatever. I don't, I don't even want to revisit the case to get the facts straight, but you basically heard a, a young boy pleading for his life before he was shot. In this one, George was 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 on the ground, um, and and you and you heard him, like you see the life coming out of him, right? And you can see, like I said, what I said to you guys was was that the cop 
kept his knee on him after he stopped moving. And I didn't even notice it in the video when I first watched it. I'm glad I didn't. But like I've seen since that people said he like he cried for his mom before, you know, that like in, in his last breath. But you can see him become motionless and you can see it looked like another cop or a coroner or someone kind of comes in and, and checks for a pulse. And the cop, I don't even want to call him a cop. He doesn't deserve to be called a cop, but the, the murderer leaves his knee there. So it was just like, and that's why I said it, it felt like torture. It was kind of like, hey, I'm not just going to take your life away. I'm going to to enjoy it. I'm going to watch you struggle. I'm going to watch you cry and scream. And then after you're done and your last breath is given, I'm going to leave my knee here just because I can. And that's what I was like, oh, this is different, man. For as many of these as we've seen in our lifetime, and there's been more than I think I've, any of us could count, it was immediately different. And, and that's why I like to our point earlier, like I don't know how whoever you are, this didn't hit you. You know, whatever your walk of life is, whatever your, your, your background, racial makeup, ethnicity, whatever, I don't know how this doesn't hit you because this is, this is torture. This is murder and it's inhumane. And when the facts came out, the guy didn't do nothing, you know? So, yeah, I, you know, I, I think for me, this also felt different. Yeah. I, I but for those same exact moments, for that same exact reason, it wasn't the usual cop shoot someone they can fake claim that, you know, we saw a weapon, right? One of those, those things, right? It, was, it wasn't that. It was literally, it was literally you, you put your full weight on someone's neck. What is that about? And for you to have one murderer being a lookout and the other two restricting the other person's limbs, what was your purpose? Like, what was your purpose but to take that man's life? Because, you know, like, as the other videos also point out, y'all took him out, y'all had them had him in a police car, then pulled him out and did this. So, like, what, what, was, what was the purpose? So, yeah, I mean, what's the purpose behind it, right? You, you, you just, it's a great question, but it really comes down to black people specifically being viewed as less than human, putting us down like dogs. The look in this murderer's face as Mr. Floyd's life started to expire, he had a smirk on his face. And it's just an indictment of the system. He knew he would get away with it because they all do. Nine days later, and it only took protests around the world to indict four officers. And literally the entire world, literally all 50 states, literally. Yeah, and we've been conditioned to um, expect this type of response um, from police that we think that an arrest is a victory. Um, Or I've been hearing things like, well, we can't arrest the other three officers or we can't necessarily arrest the suspect who took Mr. Floyd's life because we got to get it right. And that's just a perversion of justice. And it just goes to show how differently we view police officers in this world. The fact is, if I were to get hit murder, if I were to kill somebody, and likely that murder is not going to be on camera, it would just be innuendo or a rumor that I committed that crime, I would be locked up, charged for whatever, and the evidence wouldn't be a factor. They would gather the evidence, test the DNA from the point I'm incarcerated to the time I hit trial, however long that might be. And for whatever reason, we are able to keep these people roaming the streets free because we got to gather more evidence. I mean, let's... And, it's on tape. Yeah. It's on tape. Yeah. Like, what better evidence do you have than a video recording? And that, to me, is the most troubling part about it, is that how many times when shit pops off are you able to have the composure to hold it, bring your camera out, hold it still, and record? I can assure you that if any one of us gets pulled over and is harassed by cops and taken in, and we happen to record it, by the time, in the event we ever get our phone back, that recording won't be there. So it's just a matter of the fact that the system is built to protect these people. And he knew he would get away with it. And, you know, it's a condition of what white supremacy is all about. We can talk about that a little bit later because I can go on a very long rant about that. But it's the way that they're conditioned. It's the way that they're conditioned. They're human. They're the default. 
Everything else is subhuman. And that's why George Floyd's life wasn't treated with the same type of respect that there would have been for someone sharing that same skin complexion. And just to even piggyback off your thoughts, I mean, for people to have that, that line of thinking, well, well, we have to review all the facts. Well, let's think about this. The fact was he got murdered for $20. Like, really, like, that's, that's what it is. So, like, you're willing to arrest him for $20, but you won't arrest the murderer caught on camera until you have all the evidence, right? Like, mm-hmm. that part absolutely makes no sense. And, you know, and that's where we are. And, and now, here we are. It still is nine days later. We finally get, you know, all four men charged, right? And people are still conflating the argument around Colin Kaepernick and pro- protesting and the disrespect of our flag and soldiers. People are still conflating that, right? And specifically, like, you know, we can talk about what Drew Brees released earlier today. There's still a lot of tone deafness in, in the world, and it's confounding. I don't know how we keep getting to these places. Because they don't give a damn. It, it's, it's never been about disagreeing with the flag. It's about lifting up white supremacy. It's the fact that how dare you be a millionaire and complain about your condition in this country. You should be grateful. You're playing football and you're getting paid for it. Stay in your place. It, it, it's never been about the military, and it, it keeps getting dragged into that. It's been explained a million times. Like it's, it's really not even worth a conversation, but of course we'll talk about it. But I can't tell you how many times it's been explained, hey, listen, this is not about the American flag. Hey, listen, this is not about the military. Hey, listen, I met with a, with a Green Beret who told me to, to, to kneel. Kneeling is the ultimate sign of respect. Hey, Tim Tebow kneels when he prays to Jesus. Hey, it's a sign of respect, but also acknowledging the mistreatment of black Americans from police brutality. It's like, how can you disagree that police brutality is a bad thing? And that's what, it's not so much what the action is. If Colin Kaepernick had said, I'm going to kneel into, there's less than 10% homeless veterans. If that's what he would have made this about, about the treatment of our U.S. veterans, and he's going to kneel out of respect to them, then this would never be a thing. But the fact that this is about police brutality, and then he's shining a light on it, now is an issue. I think we're, we're also just losing the sight of this was a peaceful protest. What he was doing was peaceful. Now we're out in the streets, and people, of, of course, are, like, co-opting the movement and, you know, rioting and looting and all that, which has nothing to do with the issues that we have, right? But that part is unpeace- isn't peaceful, but people have an issue with that. So, like, people have an issue with when we're peaceful and people have an issue with when we're not, right? And unfortunately, really what the message is or the message has always kind of been in this country is that we just want you to be quiet. Really, like, that. that's all we want. So, like, here's your little slice over here. Just go be quiet. And that part is absolutely, like Jeff said, like, our back hurts, right? Like, it's exhausting because... How can we always be be told this? How can we always be told that, you know, we're not allowed to want basic things? We're not, we're not even asking for anything extra. We're just asking to be for basic things, like be able to, like, drive my car and, you know, not get pulled over for no reason. Or, you know, jog in my neighborhood and not get shot for no reason. Like, these are the, the most basic things. Oh, how about, like, you know, go for a walk in the park and not get accused of, you know, like, scaring a white woman. Very basic things. We have not asked for anything, right? Like, we haven't even gotten into, like, you know, the reparations part or anything like that. We don't, we, we're not even asking for that. We're just asking for the most basic of human decency and, you know, for it to always come down to just be quiet. That can't happen anymore. And that's why we're here. And, you know, the hard part is going to be, like, still keeping this conversation above the surface, below the surface, everywhere, like still maintaining this conversation and having this energy. But Trevor, if you wanted to add. Yeah, yeah. I think you brought up an interesting point about, you know, how you're just trying to live your life. You kind of come across police officers and it opened up the thought to me about like, do you, do you remember the first interaction you had with, with police and what that was like? Don't all jump at once. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I don't know if this is the first interaction. I would say that this is the first one I can remember. I remember I was in the car with my dad and my brother. So I was probably, let's say, like 10 years old. Was not feeling well that day. My dad had taken me to, like, the doctor. And then, like, I was laying. I was sitting up. And then at one point, like, I laid down in the back seat. In that moment, we got pulled over. Of course, you know, cop pulls my dad out of the car, frisked him. He's like, what, you know, what did your son put under the seat? Like, I saw him go under. Like, what did he put under the seat? And we're like, well, we just came from the hospital. My son's not feeling well. Matter of fact, here are some of the prescriptions, right? Like, but it was like 30 minutes of this where, of course, my dad is like fearful, right? Um, You know, my dad is also like English isn't his first, wasn't his first language. You know, my brother, if I'm 10, my brother's maybe like 16, 17. You know, he's, he's essentially like a young black man as well. And like, here we are, like, here we go, two generations, right? And this is... This is what it, it looks like, right? And that's, that's like the, the first interaction that I can at least remember with the police, where the expectation from them was that because we were three black males in a car, and, you know, even though I was a young person who clearly wasn't feeling well, that I somehow was, you know, hiding things in the vehicle for my father. Yeah. You know, my, my first, I, I can't really recall much police interaction when I was a child. I, I remember the song Fuck the Police, you know, and, and Cop Killer when I was young, and I was taught the police were good, so I, I was confused by that, you know? I was talking to my older cousins. I was like, why would you have a, a song called F the Police? And my older cousins would say, because they're crooked, and, you know, 911 is a joke by, you know, Public Enemy. And I said, why, why is all these songs bashing the police? And my cousins would tell me, you, you'll find out one day. And, you know, still, even, you know, going to the fifth grade, I mean, we, we had D.A.R.E. come to our schools. And, you know, we had a Spanish officer named Officer Cologne. And, you know, he would talk to us. So I still had positive interactions with the police. But then I had the cops calling me for, I guess, or not necessarily called on me, but summoned towards me because he thought I took candy from a candy store. Ultimately, the cop let me go, but... I see that I was weaponized. I mean, the police were weaponized to uh, to get me in trouble. And, of course, you know, that interaction wasn't a pleasant one. Um, it wasn't until I got much older to um, I, I started to get um, into my, my interactions with police more, getting questioned for wearing certain colors, moving to L.A. and, and having AR-15 pulled out of my face. Too many to, to name, and then obviously – going to uh, Seton Hall University. And I, I'm Sam, you probably remember, I think it was one time in like a month, I got pulled over like eight times. So I have a pretty, uh, you know, pretty checkered history with police. No convictions, uh, you know, no jail time, but constantly looking for, uh, for a way to, to, to pin me up and uh, get me boxed in. I mean, I probably phrased this as a tougher question than it should have been because as I'm thinking about it, I don't necessarily remember my first time either, which I think speaks to how many interactions over the course of our lives we've had with police and neither of us is a career criminal, which I think speaks volumes. But when I remember what I think was probably the first time I got pulled over, I think I was my, my girlfriend at the time, I think I was driving back from her house. It was late, dark, whatever. And I remember, you know, the the sirens behind me. When when those sirens flick off, the instant fear that sets in when when you see them, like it's like your your heart drops. And I don't know if everyone feels that. I don't know if every ethnicity feels that. But like that's what my feeling was. And I'd never done anything. I'd never been anxiety. Yep. I'd never been around a cop. I'd never had a reason to fear them personally outside of what I might have seen on TV or movies. And that was like this, like, Oh, and luckily, I mean, I have been brought up and been taught how to handle those. Like if you get pulled over, here's what to do. Put your hands up, like make sure your seatbelt's tied. Don't reach for anything. If you're going to go reach for something, make sure you, you call it out ahead of time. Say yes, sir. No, sir. Be very polite. Follow every order that's out there to make sure that you make it home. And I did that. And Again, I don't remember what the officer said he stopped me for, but on that day, he let me go. 
but the fear didn't stop. You know, every other time I got stopped, like the same fear set in. And why? Because like when I, when my interaction, my first, or at least the first that I remember, that first interaction I had, for better or worse, you could say it went positively. I, I got out. I didn't get a ticket. I didn't get hurt. I just got stopped and I got sent on my way. So why is that fear still there? Like, why do we as people have this inherent fear of the force that's meant to, to serve and protect us? It's, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a puzzling question, but it's an easy question because we know of so many people in our own personal lives who have had very negative experience with police officers. And like I said, in, in your case, I mean, that was just a matter of you getting pulled over. I mean, I, I've actually, you know, had cuffs get put on me, you know. Um, As have I. I've actually been put in a cell for or something that we all know, as a matter of fact, has been confirmed. So I'll take you back about 12 years ago, 12, no, actually no, 14 years ago now, I was uh, 20 years old. Like any other college student, I had a fake ID. I was trying to get into this bar called Bar A that was uh, not my idea. You know, and I think you guys know the whole behind Jeff, that. Jeff, Jeff is and plugging the place. That's right. It's not that, that it's, it's not that, that I it's not that I just know the story. We, I was there. I was I was there. I remember very vividly. Go ahead. Yeah, and you know, we you know, it, it comes to me. You know, everyone that we're with is of age. You know, and, and I happen to be the, the youngest person. You know, in the crew. I passed my fake ID off. They confiscated, and okay, cool. I think that's it. End of the story. At least that should be the end of the story. And they say, no, no, you're not going anywhere. And they cuff me, and they take me to jail. And I can't tell you, I share the story often with some of my uh, trusted white counterparts and, you know, people I know, and they say, shit, I had a fake ID. Nothing happened to me. Like, that shit almost ruined my life, you know, in regards to just paying tickets and having to go to court and cost me a lot of money. And even when I applied for a job and, and apply for a gun permit, even though it's not a felony or it's not even considered a crime, I still have to mention it. And outside of that, I have a flawless record. Like, I've been a square. I, you know, for the most part, always obeyed the law. I tried hard to straight an arrow. And for one night where I don't, especially then, I know I have a glass of whiskey now, but I wasn't even interested in drinking back then. And they gave me the ultimate, ultimate penalty for that, where they definitely let white teenagers go all the time. If they don't let them in completely, they just take the ID and say, all right, you'll just go home. But no, they, they locked me up. I feel like you left out a very important part of that part of that story which was how trash your ID was. Oh man! I, I remember. Yeah, I remember that. No, I remember that night vividly. Um, and not to make too much fun of it, but I remember we rolled up to the bar, and Jeff had this. I I think it was like Delaware. Or it was it was a state that was close. It was New York. New York, even worse. I just remember that it was a state that was very close by, and the ID looked nothing like the ID for that state. And I remember being like, "Yo." Like they're going to know they're going to have seen a New York ID before they're going to know this is fake. It was just like the most blatantly fake. I feel like it had like a brown stripe on it. It just looked nothing like the state ID. And I was like, don't go in there. Don't don't do, don't do it. I, I just remember being like, this is not a good idea. And another friend that we were with in the crew was like, nah, nah, he's going to be fine. And sure enough, we strolled up in there. And I remember being in that line because it was like a long like like amusement park kind of like snake line that they had in there as as I, usual for for the plug of bar a that yeah. that, that jeff gave and I, I remember walking up <laughs> and we're all going through and then you know you have that moment where you see your friend get pulled aside and we knew it was oh. coming again not to make light of it but it was like yeah. this story is 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 interesting to me because this is like this is a case where 
it's legally classified as a crime, but you're not like viewed as a criminal for doing something that a lot of young people do. But you were kind of taken and handled as if you were a hardened criminal in that situation. And that's where it's like, I think what's what's tough for a lot of, of non-black people to to decipher in things is that they often have this this air about them and they kind of say, well, hey, if you weren't if you weren't putting yourself in that situation, if you weren't doing something you weren't supposed to be doing, if you weren't if you were obeying, you know, the police commands, none of this would have happened. And this is a case where like, okay, you can check the box and say, Legally, Jeff was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, but for this type of offense, his experience was a lot harsher and a lot and had much bigger ramifications on the course of his life than it would for many of counterparts around the world, regardless of ethnicity, except for black. Yes, there's always been a level of like, you know, boys will be boys, right? That we aren't afforded. And again, like it it just always goes back to what, what we want are just like the basic things, right? And yes, unfortunately, to, to go back to the question that, that you had, Trevor, around like the fear or like the, the anxiety we have around it is based off the stories that we're, we've been told by older adults our entire lives. The fact that stuff like this has always been caught on footage. We can see stuff from the civil rights movement. That was cops who were turning on hoses and shit. Like, that was, that's what was happening, right? So like... This has always happened to to our community. Yeah. It's not new. The difference is like before where it was like stock footage from 1962 or whatever, right? Now we have stuff that's pretty much, if damn near daily on our phones that we could always pull up, we could always show, there's always something new. There's always something that even like is purported to be new, but really happened like three years ago. And then we'll look at it and we're like, wait, how the hell did this get swept under the rug? Well, I mean, one, one of the things is, it's really true. Like, if the media does not cover your death by a police officer or, like, you being mistreated by a police officer, there's no story about it. There's nothing. It's not like cops readily post what happens openly. You know, they might post your arrest on a website, but that's it. And it's going to be, like, your, your picture, right? Like, there's nothing that kind of talks about what actually happened, right? So if there isn't someone writing about, you know, what happened then there is no story. You kind of just don't exist. It's unfortunate. You know, that's why for, you know, when I, when I go back to like, you know, the stories are passed down by the older people in our lives, like they tell those stories because really on paper, those stories don't exist. It really is like, it's damn near like, you know, like Bible hymns or whatever, or, or like slave hymn, hymnals, right? Like it's, it's that, like, it's really like, that's, it's passed down. It's unfortunately bred, bred into us. Like that's how it's been kind of historically for, you know, black people, people of color. Like, yes, I, I identify like, you know, I'm someone of, you know, I am a Dominican person, but I am someone of, I'm, I'm black. I'm someone of African descent. I certainly don't think that, you know, we're, we're a Caucasian Island. Right. So, you know, the other part of this is like, we don't, divide ourselves as much as we have or allow people to but you know like it's unfortunate that no matter no matter where you go and that's in any country black people are always mistreated and we're always mistreated by the police like police brutality is a real thing everywhere and the fact that we can't get like this a society to like align like oh it's a real thing is very problematic Jeff, I saw you wanted to jump in a few times, guys. I mean, to answer your point, I mean, you know, if you were to uh, acknowledge the fact that police brutality or privilege is a thing, then you have to look yourself in the mirror. Anywhere that you, anything that you accomplish in life, any position that you hold, is no longer just a matter of your hard work and dedication or your talent or your intelligence. Um, you also have to come to terms with the fact that it might be a, a matter of nepotism. It might be uh, a result of the fact that some of these doors weren't open to certain people. And this is where the system comes into place. Because in black and white, just with studies that are being done, when you have two people, one, black, one person with a black name and one person with a Caucasian name, same resume, okay, same college education, the black person's resume is hardly ever looked at. The white person gets the job always before the black person based on the same resume. 
even when you take a look at who's making what. I think college graduates, black people with bachelor degrees, either make the same or make less money than white people with a high school education. And why is that the case? It's all how we value whiteness. It's the reason why Asians walk around with umbrellas in the Philippines. It's the reasons why people my complexion in Brazil claim that they're white on their census. Proximity to whiteness means that you're going to have an easier road. And this is why I honestly, you know, with all this shit going on with like the Doja Cat and stuff, I understand the inferiority complex. I don't subscribe to it, but I understand it. Because if you can align yourself with whiteness, you're going to have an easier road. If you can pass, why wouldn't you pass? I mean, I couldn't pass because I would be hard for me to look myself in the mirror every single day. But those who have values on money and materials, you have an easier path to that if you associate yourself more whiteness. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Jane Elliott. Jane Elliott is a, a teacher from Iowa um, who um, had a, a famous experiment amongst her kindergarten class where she uh, discriminated the eye color. Um, she discriminated against white children with blue eyes um, in favor of white children with brown eyes to make a point about racial discrimination. And this happened the day after Dr. King was assassinated. And she did a more recent experiment with grown ass adults. And she simply asked the audience, would you trade your life for a black person? It's like, or would you, who in here would want to be treated like a black person? Raise your hand. And no one raised their hand. And what she says is that, oh, why is it the case? Well, the reason is because you know what's happening. You see what's happening. And you know you don't want it for yourself because you know it's wrong. And that ultimately is it's what's going on in the world. But when you give police brutality its proper definition or you acknowledge that it actually does exist or that racism is a real thing, then you have to really come to terms with your own privilege and almost be willing to give it up to do what's right. And people don't want that. They don't want that. Well, no, I want to jump back to the point of like, and I don't personally like coming from where, where I come from, similar, we all come from the same larger, greater neighborhood. Right. But you know, single parent household was on parent mom was on welfare at some point, you know, lots of family in prison and et cetera, like drugs, all of that kind of like in my life experience coming up. But despite that, you know, went to college, got jobs, you know, made worked my way up the ladder so that like i'm not a full on pull yourself up by the bootstraps believer but i do have a sense of like if i could do it you could do it right and and for that again like i think i'm somewhere in the middle of recognizing or not even recognizing like it's it's the truth so like having my eyes open enough just to like feel and see that yes there is a wide disparity and yes there is a much tougher hill to climb for a lot of people that look like us but because I've done it myself, I don't think that like it's impossible. And I don't personally believe that like you're just going to get overlooked because you're black. You're definitely going to have a harder road. But like you can find your way into whatever if you kind of prepare yourself from the opportunity, you make it the right connections, et cetera. So like to the people that make that full on argument, like I said, because I'm somewhere in the middle, but like to the Candace Owenses of the world and, and all those other crazy people that just are like Kanye talk about slavery was a choice and all that other nonsense. Like, what do you say to those people that don't see the picture at all, right? Because I think there's, like like I said, to me, there's a gray area between, yes, it's harder, but I don't think it's impossible. So I don't, I don't personally see my race as an impediment to my success, though I know it's not going to be as easy as my white counterpart. But there are other people, and I've, I've been in rooms, I remember I was talking, this is going to sound real elitist, but I was talking to some students at, uh, I think it was like... Borough Manhattan College or some some college in the city that that I got a chance to kind of like come in and speak for like a career day kind of thing, and these were older people. So like, I, and I remember a woman in the room had to be at least like fifty, and I was probably not even thirty at the time, or or maybe had just turned thirty. And I remember the woman when like I'm just talking about what I do, and she said, 
how did you how did you get that how did how did they let you like she just was astonished at the fact that like a black man could be in such a position at such a company it just seemed unfathomable to her and i was just like i applied for the jobs i worked my way up and like and i know that's not everyone's experience but like how much of it again to, to kind of bring it full circle and get back to the direct question how much of it is the sense like similar to like that fear and anxiety we have of like what's what could happen if a cop comes around us right like how much of it is that thought that like we're not going to get ahead that we're not ever going to be on an even playing field or we're not going to get a shot at these things how much of it is that and how much of it is truly the white man holding you down well i mean i have to just jump in real quick sam i know you probably have a lot to say about that but i mean i just gave you i didn't give you actual statistic type of numbers behind it but there are studies that showcased how often black names are overlooked so if it's completely overlooked then that's a real life impediment and there's nothing there's no way you can deny that the person doesn't even get in the room because of that now it also is psychological too all right because the scout the experiences that you've been through but you know when you are told that like I have nieces that are about your complexion, Trevor, and they were they refused to buy a, a black Barbie because they say the white Barbie is pretty, a white or the black the black Barbie is prettier, and we're not a family of coons. We we don't you know subscribe to self hate. You know, in fact, we have a lot of pride in ourselves. But the world is telling her when she looks on television, when she sees Santa Claus, and when she sees Jesus, that she's inferior. And this is you know the examples of now the president and, you know, lawyers on television versus who the maids are and who the mammies are and who's playing the gangsters and, you know, who's dancing and who's singing, who's rapping and who's the owner of the record label. Um, so representation and images, it does a lot to kind of put you on, on a certain path. Now, I think it's also important that we recognize our privilege. The fact of the matter is that we were brought up in the Northeast where we are more educated. We do have better schools. It is more racially diverse. Race relations are better than the rest of the country. You might be a dark-skinned black man, but most people might say you're handsome and you're tall and you're fit and you have no deformities in your face and you're straight. And even as black men, we have to be able to see the privilege that we have. Yeah, you know, not to say that you wouldn't have the same job that you have right now if you were a woman, but you might have got your ass grabbed a couple times bending over in the mailroom. And who's to say that you would have struck along after that experience? There's a lot to say about it. Like, I think there are exceptions to the rule. I think that you are extremely talented and one of the most intelligent people that I know. So I think you deserve a lot of credit for that. I honestly think you'd be further along, you know, if you weren't black. That's just my personal opinion. Um, being the fact that I don't believe that you take advantage of any type of affirmative action um, type of programs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Jeff kind of touched on all the points I wanted to. I, I think the, that we are more privileged than the maybe the average black person or person of color, right? Like whatever, right? To to be a little more inclusive, right? Because of where we were born. You know, we weren't born born in Iowa. You know, where there was only the company. And that company only hires the people that look like them. There is at least diversity in terms of the type of employment you want to seek living here, right? But even then, and, and it goes back to like where, where I say like the implicit bias thing. So, I mean, you know, we, we can talk about, because, you know, we talk about sports here all the time, but talk about the NFL. 70% black, no black head coaches, really? Like, you know, very limited amount of black head coaches, one one owner who is a minority out of the 32. I think there's something, only like a handful of coordinators, right? But you, you would think 70% black, these, these guys are playing the game. They know the game. It would only make sense that they can come and coach the game. It would only make sense that they would coach it on the, the smaller scale than the, you know, than the larger scale. But unfortunately, that part isn't happening, right? And when it does happen, you are given one opportunity. You are rarely afforded several opportunities. So, you know, we can point out a whole bunch of different NFL head coaches that failed two or three places. And even if they failed as a head coach a third time, 
all right, well, we'll give them a coordinator job and they'll still make, you know, a good amount of money, the, you know, the second most on the team as a coach, right? You know, there, there are practices that weed us out before we ever get there. And, you know, again, I think speaking to like Jeff, like you in particular, right? Like you're a talented person, right? You're a smart person. Like you were planful. You had a path, right? You, you know, like you followed it. You, you know, uh, you know, when you came to like the fork in the road, like you, you were able to kind of like, you know, choose the right path, right? Like the, the right way to go. You were lucky because again, like where, where you were in your life uh, more, more than anything else. And I, not everyone is afforded that same kind of luxury. Again, it goes back to the privilege part, but you were also around like your peers who were kind of in the same place, right? And sometimes it also just matters who you're around and like some of the access that they have. Now, yeah, I mean, not to diminish all the points that you brought up, Stan, but like what stuck out to me was like, Jeff is like, oh, well, you're, you're tall and people could say that you're a good looking guy. I've never thought of that as, as a factor in my professional ascent but like if you walk into some places a lot of places a lot of companies especially in in media and marketing you know they they like to hire people who look like their target consumer and if i were a little rougher around the edges or even darker in complexion do i fit what they think their target consumer is like when they think of a black consumer for their products or their or media they're probably thinking of a high earner or is someone that's a little bit more professional oriented and I might fit that bill of what a black person is in their in their mind so thank y'all for, for saying that because I've uh, like I said I never considered it in that way but I do still think I don't want to push that to the side but I mean that's my story right so like that's that's my case but what does that mean for Again, like there's still other people that aren't from the Northeast that aren't, you know, surrounded by other like there's still people that make it out regardless of how tough those odds might be. There are people that make it out all over the country, all over the world. And if that person can do it against those odds, again, everyone's story is different and everyone doesn't have the same path. But like, why is there that thought that it can't be me is is more my question. Like, why does someone not see because I mean, I think all of us, and I think we might have talked about it on, on an earlier show, but like, you know, I wanted to be a sportscaster at one point and I thought I could do it because I saw Stuart Scott do it. And that was like, oh, I can do it because he did it. There's someone like that, if not in your town, there's someone like that in your greater city. Hopefully there's someone like that in your family, maybe not, but like there's someone somewhere in the world where you could say, oh, that can be me. And if that person did it, I can do it. But that doesn't seem to permeate our culture specifically the way that it does others where people are like, oh, my aunt's a doctor and a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor and a lawyer or I'm going to be this. And like, they don't have any, there's no doubt in their mind that they can do it. But we have this doubt for some reason. That's more what I'm trying to like understand. Yeah, because we have to be the first person in our family to go to college or, you know, Stuart Scott, I'm not sure if there was any other black sportscasters on ESPN before Stuart Scott, but, you know, he's the first black sportscaster and this is the first black president. And this is the first black person, first president of the Harvard Law Review. And this is the first person of leadership, a black person in leadership in this particular position. So when it comes to it, I mean, you know, even if you see someone being the first, because there's not that many, you might well say, well, shit, maybe they're only just allowing one person. So whether it's true or not, um, whether these companies are inherently racist or it's just that they're not getting enough black applicants. And I do hear that sometimes, you know, it's also psychological when you don't see it. It's the word is odds. I mean, do white people consider odds, their odds to something like we do? I don't know. I doubt they do. I think the word odds probably comes up in their mind and their vocabulary and their uh, opinion less, far less than it does for black people because we just don't see that many, you know, it's just, that one example, you know, the Thurgood Marshall, the Jackie Robinson, the, the Barack Obama, the Stuart Scotts. And, and, you know, and I would also add, and, you know, I think, Trevor, I know you want to jump in, but I would also add, like, what are we, like, just two generations removed from, like, Jim, Jim Crow? You know? So, like, there were literal legal practices in place that said, you do not have access to X, right? So now we're, the next generation after that gets affirmative action, and then now comes us. So like where we are not in a position or there aren't 
that many stories yet about us, like that many positive stories about us just yet. And I think the best is yet to come, right? Like, because I feel like we all project that way. We all, that's that's what we want, right? But I, I really just think it's that. I think that we are not that many generations removed from not having access to a lot of things, you know, and now is when we are kind of building wealth, excellence, resources, right? This is the time we're building it, right? For me, my story is a little different because I'm literally first generation, right? So like, you know, my parents came here from another country and, you know, my dad didn't finish high school, my mom did, right? But like, you know, no more than a high school education and came here, right? So literally first generation, I'm working, I'm, I'm trying to work this thing out as I go. And I know if I have children, they'll have a better opportunity than I, right? And that's that's really the way in which you're supposed to build. But like, again, this is this is kind of like the place where we start. So like, we're 400 years behind. Yeah, it brings me to the to the thought of like, how do you stop that cycle? And is that is that the larger conversation that we as a community, a greater community, need to start having? Because I mean, I know there's lots of programs in place. I know there's lots of people that are investing time and, and resources and money in that effort. But there's this larger dialogues is coming up with, you know, with everything that's happened with George Floyd and you see more people talking about becoming allies and now you, hopefully it's a real thing, right? But like you have these people that are volunteering to kind of look out and, and volunteering to lend a hand where they can and volunteering to change practices and approaches and mindsets of what their their habits and their culture have been for for years decades if not you know centuries right in some cases in some businesses so how do we do our part to seize that moment because like we're with us you know sam if you're first generation and we're kind of the, i'm not the first in my family to go to college but i'm I think i'm one of two males to have graduated right so like that's not far off like i'm a, i'm the step behind sam right yeah. so like how do you kind of go back and then pull up the next generation so that they believe they can do it especially at a time where people are hopefully it lasts longer than you know 10 seconds but at a time where people are saying hey i'm here how can i help i'll jump in briefly and i'll and i'll say really like two things and really because I'm, I'm just thinking about like the world today as we kind of see it and just like kind of the, the work that I do and, you know, it's going to be education and it's going to be access to technology. Right now, because of where we are with, you know, remote learning and, and that stuff, kids learning is going to be way more different and a bit more difficult, right? Because everything is going to be based on the technology that they have. Now, what you're kind of starting to see is that, like, we don't have that same access to technology. We don't have the same access to the internet or, you know, like a laptop or an iPad, you know, as readily accessible as like some of the other cultures. So like, I think that to answer your question in, the, in a very like kind of direct way, I think those are going to be the two key things. I think that, you know, like in, in many ways, something like what LeBron James built with like his I Promise School is like a step in the right direction, like a super inclusive school that's really designed to support people who look like us and you know need the resources and provide them with, with, with those resources right so that we don't get left behind in that way so yeah i wanted to keep that part brief well i really don't know how to uh i'll add on to your point um your point sam that you made um, um to answer trevor's question directly and how do we keep the momentum going in regards to having the attention from our our allies it's a difficult question because it's like, what can we really do? I mean, it's, it's honestly, us as black people aren't doing anything differently. It's just that they just came into the fold. So, I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. It, it's really up to them if, if they're going to, uh, you know, remain empathetic. Um, I think that because of this COVID-19 pandemic, they're starting to see how life can be when you are, are struggling a bit more. Um, so I think their eyes are, are, are more open um, now. But, you know, we'll see what happens when things are normalized. I know that we can't let the pressure up. I did want to take at least a second to kind of shout out Black women. And, you know, not, not to be a simp or anything like that. But 
in all this, I think that what we need to actually just go ahead and like appreciate is that really they're the ones that have our back in all this. And like, really like they're the ones that have shared in all the pain. Right. And I think that we, we just have to like take a second and really like recognize that part because when it goes back to, you know, what I was talking about earlier and listening to other people's experiences, like they're the women that raise these children. The, the, the men that either that unfortunately get hurt and brutalized by the police are being raised by, by these women. These women are, are with these men to create these young children. So, like, there needs to be just some recognition. So, I, I, you know, I just wanted to make sure we hit on that part just because, yeah, there are partners in this. Yeah. It's even historically speaking, right? You think about the Wendy Mandela's, you think about the Credit Scott King, you think about the Betty Spanish's of the world. It's that it, it, it's a burden, you know, to, to be an activist, to be a leader for the family. Not only just being a mother and support system and the person that tells the man as he lays down at sleep where he can be vulnerable is that you got this, babe. You can do this. That's most important, right? We have a lot of allies who are getting a lot of props for finally showing solidarity. But the one group of people who have had her back today, yesterday, and will have her back tomorrow have been our black women. And, you know, oddly enough, I just shared, I took too long to share this, but I had to share um, a, a say her name um, thing on my story on Instagram, uh, which shows the black women who've been lo- lost to police brutality throughout these years. Now, it may not be as many as men, but they have lost their lives too. And many times their story hasn't been covered the same. I mean, we all know who Sandra Bland is, but, you know, her name is not as known as a Trayvon Martin or Mike Brown, or, uh, you know, or, or some of the others. Black women, we appreciate you. Thank you for being there to protect us. And we promise us at uh, the For Real For Real podcast, we promise to love and support you as well. Because it's something that, you know, they may not sign up to be a widow, but they deal with it. And they do it in a remarkable way. And they pick up the torch long after the men are gone. So much love and respect, love and light to our black sisters and our black queens. Absolutely. And also I want to make sure that we give a special shout out to the moms, especially the black moms from all over the country who dropped whatever they were doing and took the trek out to Minneapolis to show up for the protests and memorial service of George Floyd. That all takes an incredible amount of strength and resilience. And that's obviously something that they hold and exhibit day in, day out, and raising children. Also want to give a special shout out to you, the listener, for riding with us through this first episode. We hope to have you guys back with us next week. Be sure to check us out on your favorite podcast app, whether that be Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, what have you. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, rate us five stars or better. Share your reviews, share your feedback with us. You can hit us up on social media. We're on Instagram at For Real For Real Podcast. We'll be back next week, bring you guys more to For Real. For now, Peace.